The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Do you indeed sit enthroned in the heavens and you reign? Father, Son, and Spirit, you are God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Before anything was anywhere ever, you were. You reign over it all now, over every detail of it, over us, every detail of us and our lives. You tell us in your word, Father, that you have raised the Son and raised him up, and he is seated at the right hand spreading every moment and every day, spreading His kingdom reign to bring it all to heal under His authority. That's going on right now. His kingdom increases in every moment. His authority is revealed His glory spreads in every moment. And there is a day that He will come again and consummate this long quest. He will bring it to completion. He will finish it. And then as you tell us in the Scripture, He will wrap it all up as a present and lay it at your feet, Father. And you will be everything. God, all in all. You filling everything as you should. No more rebellion. No more resistance. Wholeness and fullness and rightness. And sweetness and beauty. That's coming. It has been started and it's coming. But it is not yet here in fullness. We know it well. We look around and we live it. It's not yet what it should be. And so, Lord, in this interim period of the already come kingdom, but the not yet come kingdom, as we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, give us grace to live now in this moment in faith, in rest. Give us eyes to see your arm delivering us. Give us us eyes to see you bringing in the fullness of your kingdom. Sustain us and help us to live. Be a shield and a fortress and a protector to us, your people. We look to you for that, Lord. We need you for that because we are without you. We are helpless and adrift. Lord, there are, there are some here, I, I'm, I'm sure, who are in the fullest sense helpless and adrift, who don't know you. Maybe you know about you, maybe have heard of you, but need to meet you in a saving way. And I pray, Lord, that you would stretch out your arm and bring your kingdom to such ones as this to a man, a woman, a teenager, young boy, young girl, whoever, Lord, reach out and save today. We look for you to save for the first time. We look for you to save us repeatedly. We look for you to bring your kingdom in and save us fully and finally. In the meantime, open up this scripture to us, this passage here from 1 Samuel written long ago. Open it up and show us in it hope. Open a confidence that you will fulfill your promise and you will will save your son. And then hope in the promise that in that son you will save your sons. 
sons and daughters. Help us to see it and believe it, rest in it and hope in it. To worship you, to rejoice in you, even here in the midst of this world that has still fallen. We look for you to do this, Lord. We hope for you to do this. And we ask that you would send your Spirit upon us now and turn our minds and hearts towards you and grow us in rest and in love and in worship to your honor and for our good, I pray it. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 19. And in this chapter, we see the the hatred of Saul towards David. We see it come out into the open. It had arisen in chapter 18, but it was still hidden in Saul's heart back in that chapter. Saul had initially been very fond of David, had seen David's military success and had loved it as David took his life into his hands, as Jonathan says, and went out and killed Goliath and then led them in other military victories, and and he loved that at first. But then as love for David grew, which was one of the main themes from, from last week, One of the themes of chapter 18 was a growing and widespread love for David. We see Jonathan has loyal love for David, and McCall has loyal love for David, individuals. And then we see groups of people, the servants of Saul, have love for David. And then finally, verse 16 of of last week's chapter, chapter 18, puts it, all Israel and Judah loved David. Everybody just loves David because they see him going out before them to fight for them and to deliver them and to win for them multiple victories to to save them from their enemies and so they love him and Saul saw that and then realized that this widespread growing love for David was a direct threat to his own throne which was the challenge for us last week as we look at not this David who's been dead for several millennium, but we look at the new and greater David whom God has used to deliver the people. We look at all that this great David, Jesus, has won for us, fought for and won for us, and all of the many blessings that through him God has poured out on us. Love and and loyalty should grow in us and be poured out on him unless we, like Saul, see that his rising means our declining. If we see that as he increases, we must decrease, and we are threatened by that, then we have a problem. That was a challenge for us. Are you willing to be like Jonathan and see Christ and lay everything, including every right that you have to be the ruler? Jonathan was crown prince, was next in charge, and he said, I give it all up to you. Are you willing to lay everything at his feet, or like Saul, will you fight and cling to the throne and hate him? Fight against him. Chapter 18 ended, verse 29. Saul became David's enemy continually. And that opposing, that seeking to kill David is what is developed now in the open in our chapter this morning, chapter 19. But really, Saul trying to kill David, well, it's all throughout the chapter, is not actually the main focus of the chapter. The main focus is the thwarting of Saul trying to kill David. That's the focus. And that's what's going to draw our attention this morning as we look at four separate episodes. There are four different scenes in this chapter, all of which see Saul's attempt to kill David thwarted. So that's what we're going to look at. Let me read the text, and then I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand some of the details before making a couple of overarching observations. This is 1 Samuel chapter 19. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you, 
For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to seek David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth. And it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Secu. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naioth in Ramah. And he went there to Naioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? 1 Samuel 19. This chapter shows us Saul's hidden anger, his hatred coming out. And we see that intention right away in verse 1 as he holds a meeting to instruct his servants to kill David. But right away we get the contrast and the hint at how this might be resolved because Jonathan has been invited and Jonathan, it says, very much delighted in him. We saw last chapter where he made a covenant of loyal love with David. So he cares for him and has pledged to him his, his submission. And so when his father issues the death warrant, he acts, he intercedes, and he warns David and then goes to speak to his father in verses 4 and following. And how he approaches him is very tactful. He approaches him not as a father asking his dad for a favor. He approaches him as the king, and he carefully speaks to him in language of the covenant. He frames this in sin and uses language that alludes to the, the law of Moses. He says to him, O king, why should you sin against innocent blood? He has not sinned against you. In fact, he's done you and all of us good he is truly innocent. Do not sin against him. Beginning and end, he points out sin and invites Saul to think back. Shedding innocent blood, Saul invites the curse of God on the whole land and on you. Don't do that. And David is innocent. And Saul is persuaded. 
He listens to the argument and swears by the name of the Lord that he will not kill David, at least not until the next time he wants to kill David. He's spared and things are patched up for a little while until, of course, there is war again. And predictably, David excels at war. Blessed by God, and he causes the Philistines to flee, which ironically leads to him needing to flee. The harmful spirit from the Lord comes again on Saul. Now, if you haven't been here before, we've talked about this a number of different times. This is the habit as the Lord has departed from Saul and is putting Saul under judgment. He is using an evil spirit. And it says it's from the Lord. It it has to be from the Lord because there is nothing that isn't from the Lord. The Lord reigns over all things on earth. There are not two powers here, good and evil. There is one power, the Lord, and everything happens beneath Him, including all of the evil powers that work. And He's using an evil spirit here in a, for a bunch of different reasons, summed up under to pour out judgment on Saul. And here it comes again, and David was the appointed one who played music and sometimes was able to give him liberation and freedom and relief from this torment. So David's there playing his lyre, and once again, as we have seen, Saul grabs the spear and tries to kill him. This time, verse 10, David now knows that Saul's out to get him, knows this is no coincidence, and so he fled and escaped that night. And that word escaped, that concept in that word is important throughout this whole chapter. The word escape is here five times. It's here, it's in the next verse in 11, and it's in 12, and in 17, and in 18. Right, packed right here in the middle around his running, his fleeing and escaping. He escapes from death, first going home to where McCall, his wife, Saul's daughter. There's great irony here that Saul's out to get him and his kids are the ones thwarting him. But McCall there at, at home says, you have to run tonight. Perhaps she'd seen the men lying in wait and so she lets him down through a window and he, it says again, fled and escaped Similar to verse 10. And McCall buys him time by using deception, by lying, and by using the household idols that she had at hand. Which notice, the Bible does not condone this. It just says, this is what she did. She lied, and she used her personal idols. That's who she was. That's what she did. And it enabled David, verse 18, again to flee and escape. And he now runs to Samuel, the, the old aged prophet, runs to him at Ramah, Samuel's hometown, which is just a few miles away. And now having seen how Jonathan got personally involved and McCall got personally involved, we probably expect Samuel to get personally involved. After all, he, he knows, very, knows Saul very well and has a, a lot of power. He's the old prophet. But he doesn't get involved. What we see, in fact, is that the Spirit of God personally gets involved, steps to the forefront. Coming upon, verse 20, the messengers of Saul that were sent to capture David, who was at Nioth in Ramah. Now, Nioth, the concept's a little hard to understand. What is that exactly? The word has some connection to the word for prophet and some connection to the word for dwellings, particularly dwellings of shepherds. And because it is at or in Ramah, it's not a separate town. It's part of this town. So it seems like it's a place where the prophets dwell within this area. Maybe a a commune or a a tent city of some sort. Anyway, the prophets live there. This is Samuel's hometown, so he's the head of the prophets. It's not surprising that prophets would gather there. And he stands at their head. And as Saul hears, that's where... David is. He sends messengers to go get him. And as they come, it says, verse 20, the Spirit of God came upon them and rendered them helpless to do anything but prophesy in some way to worship the Lord in some sort of altered state. Perhaps some state of ecstasy, but whatever it is exactly, they are beside themselves and are unable to carry out the mission they were sent to do, take him and leave. They're they're stuck, overcome by the Spirit of God. And Saul hears that failed, so he sends another batch They also, same thing, sends another batch. They also, same thing. And there's just, this is subtly comical, if you have the right sense of humor. 
just keeps feeding them in, and then you can kind of see them a little bit. Oh, goodness. I guess I have to go do it. Something done right, do it yourself. And so Saul himself then says, I will go. It's only a few miles away. So he arrives at Ramah and stops at the great well there, strikingly similar to how he stopped at a well, perhaps this very well, years ago when he first came to Ramah looking for something. And he stops at the well like he did before and asks, where is the seer? Because when I find him, I'll find what I'm looking for. Where is Samuel and David? And again, those at the well tell him. And as he goes, the Spirit of God comes on him again, it says, verse 23. But differently than how it happened back in chapter 10, when the Spirit of God came upon Saul and placed on him powerfully the mantle of being king, here, the language is less powerful. It does not rush on him and fill him and anoint him. It just is, just is on him. And instead of placing on him the mantle of kingship, it strips it off. We talked last week about how Jonathan's clothing would have marked him as the crown prince. Saul's clothing would have marked him as the king. Everybody would have seen royal robes. And here, reversing what happened so long ago, the Spirit comes on him and strips away the kingdom and causes him to fall in front of Samuel and David, naked all day and all night, babbling beside himself. Now, naked might not mean buck naked, <laughs> just so you know, but it means clearly inappropriately, indecently clothed for the public. So everybody's standing around. There's the king in his underwear losing his mind. Just like all the other prophets. The phrase now, is he among the prophets, is a, yeah, he is. This is a stripping and a humbling and an embarrassing of a would-be killer who is, in all of his might has come to kill and, and by the Spirit of God is broken and left embarrassed. That's where it ends. Now it picks up right there at the beginning of the next chapter. The action continues, but it stops right there with Saul undone and David secure. That's the chapter. I want to make two observations from it. One, maybe more big picture. And then one more specific, I think, to us as individuals. You see the big picture first, though. So here's my first observation. The Lord delivers His anointed from every threat until His kingdom comes. The Lord delivers His anointed from every threat until His kingdom comes. David's escape from the threat of death is the major emphasis of the chapter. The, the word itself, as I said, is used five times, packed right there in the middle. He physically runs away from Saul in, in those two middle scenes. He runs out of his presence as he throws a spear at him. He climbs out a window, flees out of a city. Obviously, he is escaping danger. But in fact, all four of the scenes are about him escaping danger in slightly different ways. Physically, without running away, he escapes the death threat in the first section as that threat is removed. And in the last section, he doesn't actually run away there either. But the threat, the death threat, the, the official intention remains, but he stands there and watches it all in front of him falling apart. So it's, it's a little different every time. Sometimes he's removing himself or is removed from the presence of the threat as he flees. Sometimes the threat goes away. And sometimes he stands right in the face of the threat and watches it crumble. But either way, any of those ways, it's all about him being given an out, a way out, an escape. Or another word we might use is deliverance from the threat of death. 
And all of it is given to David by the Lord. All of it is given to David by the Lord. This is important to to realize. The Lord is the one doing the delivering. Now, yes, you read the first few verses. Jonathan, obviously, is the one who's acting. He intervenes. He warns David. He he makes a skillful argument that, that gains traction in the king's mind. Sure. And then in the throne room, it's David reacting, his reflexes and his, his eye on Saul. And then at home, it's McCall with her plan, her deception. And it would be easy to look at all that and, and to see the smooth logic of, of, of a diplomat or the reflexes of a soldier or the, the loyal and deceptive love of a, of a wife, to see Jonathan and David and McCall granting David a way out. But that's, that would be to completely miss the main character. The Lord is the one who has been David's help. God is at work in all of these stories. Each of these moments behind these people, God is at work providentially to deliver His anointed one. Remember that, the word, the doctrine of providence, the, the truth, the fact of providence. God at work Providence teaches us that God is at work in the world using secondary agents. God is the primary agent, but He's using secondary agents always functioning as they function to carry out God's determined plan. God doesn't come to a plan after people act. People act to carry out God's determined plan. People functioning just as they are, not out of the ordinary, not in unnatural ways. That would be something supernatural. That happens also. We'll come to that in a moment. But 99% of the time, God works providentially with people just being people, with weather just being weather, with animals, laws of nature, gravity. Stuff just happens, or so it seems. But behind it all is God who is working out all of the the actions and all the thoughts and all the behaviors and all the agendas of, of a myriad of myriad upon myriads of secondary agents weaving them all together in a complex, incredibly complicated plan to carry out His purpose for all of the universe, for David's life, and for yours. God is the main character always in life. God is the main character in your life. And so as to help us realize that God is the one carrying out David's deliverance, the last episode, verses 18 and following, show us the Spirit of God stepping out from behind the curtain, if you will, coming out and being the revealed main character. The Spirit of God, it says, fell upon the messengers. The Spirit of God came on Saul. Directly intervening. So that no one can miss it and no one can say, wow, it was the hand of Jonathan that delivered David. Or what a coincidence. David happened to look up as the spear flew. No one can miss it. No one can misunderstand. Everybody must conclude that God is the one who at David's side is acting to moment by moment deliver him from every threat until His kingdom comes. That's why the Lord is at work here to deliver David. Not because David's a good guy, but because God has a plan. And God has promised, I have chosen this one. He is the anointed one who will wear the royal robes that I'm stripping off of this one. I'm going to take them off of him and put them on David. And until that moment comes, I will safely secure him from every threat. David is already the anointed one, but it is not yet time for him to reign. So between the already and the not yet, the Lord has promised and has committed his strong arm to secure David in every single situation, every threat. He will sit on the throne and His kingdom will come. His reign will happen in Israel and in all of the earth. And no 
warring Philistine and no plotting king can stop it. It cannot be stopped. You see, God committed himself to David. And so the question should arise, then why on earth do the nations rage and does an evil king take his stand against the Lord and against his anointed? Why? Why does he come in and plot to to overthrow him? The Lord who sits in heaven laughs in derision. I'm going to take you to your underwear and lie you out in front of everybody to show you how silly this is. I have chosen my king and I have anointed him and he is already in my mind seated on Mount Zion and he will rule the kingdom of the earth with a rod of iron and he will break all opposition as a clay pot. So be very careful and kiss the son. Right now we have a chance, Saul. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and break you in his anger. Melding some language in there. Do you know that language? It's the language of Psalm 2. You recognize it? In which God expresses his commitment to David and every single one of David's sons after him. God says, I have chosen, I have anointed a ruler. And all who plot against him will fall. It's a done deal in my mind. I have enthroned him. I will sustain him. And he will crush all opposition. But there's a line in that psalm that expresses something that reaches beyond David and beyond any other son of David. What we find here is God beginning to show His commitment to David and His purpose to put David on the throne. And that purpose is extended on past David to every one of the sons of David. God's even going to put it in in a covenant eventually here in the book of Samuel. God commits Himself to David and every one of David's sons after Him to put them on the throne and to give to them the subjection of all the nations. But at that point right there, there's a line in Psalm 2 that stretches it. A subjection of all of the nations. He says there, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. Not David, nor did any of David's sons ever have all the nations the ends of the earth as their kingdom. So who is he talking about? The New Testament makes clear he's talking about. You know where this is going. I hope you know where this is going. To the son of David. There was and there remains a great anointed son of David to whom the Lord has promised All of the nations, every corner of the earth is his heritage. And he has committed himself to upholding this one, this David, in the face of all opposition, in the face of every threat, and to deliver him from every challenge until his kingdom comes. And it will come. So this is the big picture. And it may be that you struggle for a moment to realize how this matters to you. I think we'll come there. But the Lord put on one son of David his spirit and extended to him the promise to David and then expanded it. All of the nations, every tongue and tribe will be yours. And I will protect you from every threat in the desert. The Father, through his spirit, ministered to the Son and protected him from every threat. Throughout his life, in the garden at the end, And then finally, as the nations and as the rulers of Israel plotted together to kill this one, unwittingly, providentially, they fulfilled the Lord's will, and then God saved him from death. And raised him up and seated him, and the kingdom has come. 
there is something here that's, that's big you need to think about. Because it is so easy for us to, to, to live here, and appropriately so. There, there is a whole lot right here that, that is of concern to us, either good or bad, but it is, is of concern to us. But the problem is that when we live all right here, we don't ever lift up our eyes and see we forget something. We, we, may, we may gather together and pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And fail to realize that He is answering that every day with yes. My kingdom is coming. I am bringing it in even today and tomorrow and the next day. And one day, for real. It's happening. Irresistibly, relentlessly, gloriously, the reign of this king is coming. And every opposition to it while he walked the earth the first time, and every opposition to it now that would threaten if it could have killed him, it would have killed him and put him in the grave and locked him up forever. But if it can't kill him, it will at least oppose him and thwart him and try to contain him and stop him. Every bit of opposition will be put down by the God who has promised to give him all of the nations as a heritage. That matters for you, Christian. Because it says that your future is vast and marvelous and glorious and there is promise to you, even in the here and now, a marvelous protection as a citizen of that coming kingdom. We'll talk about that in a moment. It matters to you, Christian. But if you are not a Christian, the warning of Psalm 2, Be wise now, O men and women of the earth. Kiss the Son now, lest He be angry with you. There is a a solemn, serious warning in that. If this kingdom is in fact coming irresistibly, if this kingdom is pressing in on you, then why, the question asks, why do the nations and why do you rage against Him? Why? 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 It is not an intellectual problem. It wasn't for Saul. It isn't for you. It's not an opportunity problem. You don't know of it. It's an incredibly simple problem. You resist him and you hold him back and you plot ways to avoid him if you could to utterly reject him, but if you can't, then to contain him and marginalize him. You plot that and think of that because you don't want him. You want yourself to reign. That is a losing proposition. I don't, I don't know who I'm talking to, but I'm talking to somebody. And if that's you, I plead with you. That is a losing proposition. He is the King. He has been delivered from death, raised out of the grave, brought back to life. He sits enthroned in heaven, and He is coming to judge the quick and the dead. That's you. Right now, will you have a chance? Kiss the Son. That is, bow the knee to Him. Give your heart to Him. Surrender authority over your life to Him as King. Now, will you have the chance? Because the kingdom is here and it is coming. And for those of us who now are members of the kingdom that is already here and for whom that kingdom is coming, there is a great promised freedom and protection for you right now, which leads me to the second point. 
I think the second point should be of encouragement to you if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian. And I think it should be a lure, an inducement to you if you aren't yet. I think. So may God make it like that for you. There's a great promise of protection that is alluded to in this text, but is not openly taught here. It's just it's implied by what is openly taught. But here's how I'm expressing the second point. In Christ, God works deliverance for us too. So the first point is about how the Lord is working deliverance for His anointed until the kingdom comes. And the second point is in Christ, He works deliverance for us too, those of us who are in Christ. As I said, this is not openly taught in the passage because the passage is about how because the Lord determined to give David the kingdom, he protected him from every threat. Which is a model for how he acted with Christ, the son of David, determined to give him kingdom reign in all the earth. He protects him from every threat and from every opposition. And then we are in the passage too indirectly because we are included in Christ. So think, think about this with me. Included in Christ. That language is sometimes kind of churchish language. If it helps you to think of a, of a sphere called Christ, inside that sphere, in Christ, then wherever the sphere goes, whatever is inside of that sphere goes there too. In Christ, as a Christian, wonderfully, you are an heir with Christ of all of the privileges and all of the blessings of this kingdom of Christ's. You are a citizen of the kingdom, and you will not miss it. You will not fall short of it. You've been placed into it. It's yours. So you are preserved in Christ. You are kept in Christ, delivered from every threat that would take you away from it. From every threat that would seek to kill you or destroy you. You're kept. And He will deliver you, as we pray, deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one. He will do so and bring you safely into His promised rest. That's been granted to you as a right, as a citizen of the kingdom. In Christ. He will not abandon you. Even though we still walk the earth amidst all kinds of trials and all kinds of troubles, He has promised to be a shield and a refuge, a tower of strength to you if you are in Christ. Or another way I could say all this is to say that Psalm 59 is for you. Turn a look at Psalm 59. Now, as you're turning there, a number of the psalms have headings that are over them, and they are written to give us some idea of the setting, either who wrote it or about whom it was written or why it was written. So we see the setting given to us at the beginning of Psalm 59, to the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, that's setting the tune for us, a miktam, a type of psalm, of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Hey, this is about our chapter. But it's about far more than our chapter. As we read the language, we see it expand beyond just that one event. Verse 1, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. What right do you have to say that? Think about this. If you're a Christian, think about this. What right do you have to say that? Because you are in Christ, 
Christ has opened to you the privilege of going and talking to the Father to make a request of Him. Deliver me from my enemies, oh my God. Protect me from those who rise against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. Save me from bloodthirsty men. What right do you have to ask the Father to deliver you from evil when you do evil, according to Jesus? Talking to people here on earth, we are people who do evil. What right do we have to talk to Him like that? In Christ... He has removed off of you wrath and placed onto you righteousness. The psalm's for you. So you can ask Him, deliver me. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me. He asks the Lord and see. You, Lord God of hosts, or God of Israel, rouse Yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. It expands to be about the nations and about all who plot evil. This is a psalm that is for you in Christ and is about God intervening on your behalf against evil. This is good news for you because you are in Christ. It expands to be about all kinds of evil, depicted as men prowling around in a city. It says that twice here. Verse 7, there they are, bellowing with their mouths, swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision, echoes in Psalm 2. O my strength, you say. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in His steadfast love, will meet me. Because He has steadfast love for you in Christ, He will meet you when you call out to Him. He is a fortress for you, a refuge in the face of all evil. That is good news for you. Which means what, practically speaking? The psalm is for you, but what does it mean, practically speaking, when, say, as some experience, even dearly loved people who are close to me do me evil? Family members. What does it mean when, maybe it's not somebody who's dearly loved and close, but somebody who has power over you, boss. What does it mean when you face evil, not personified, but evil in this fallen world in the form of disease? It's got to mean something then. Because it's, it's nice to read a psalm that is, oh, God's a, a strength and a fortress. I'll watch for Him and He'll meet me. And then I step out into the world and face all manner of chaos and trouble and trial. The, the things have to connect. What does the psalm mean for you? Does it mean that you will never face trial and tribulation? Of course not. You were promised that, in fact. Does it mean you will never die? Of course not. We all die. What does it mean? Do you think like this when you read the Psalms? What does this mean for me? What does it mean that God is a shield, that He is a strength, that He is a fortress for me in the face of men prowling around a city, howling, cursing, lying, Verse 14, in the evening they come back howling like dogs. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fear. Phil, it's a, it's a vivid image of being at home in the dark, helpless, as the streets are full of people who would do you harm. What does this mean? Do you know? It does not mean that there will be no trouble. It means that in the midst of the trouble, sometimes 
standing right in front of it and watching it fall apart, sometimes fleeing away from it, sometimes having it cease to be a problem, and sometimes having it rush over you, pound down like a wave, and kill you. In the midst of all of that, it means that you will not fail to experience all of the blessings of the kingdom. He promises to keep you safe until His kingdom comes in fullness on you. Leading up to that time, He promises to be at work to bring kingdom blessings. He cannot bring them all in fullness before they come in fullness. (coughs) But leading up to that time, He brings kingdom blessings to you In this way, He is conforming you to the image of His Son, constantly reshaping you to know the goodness of God. So that you may be hard-pressed, but you will not be destroyed. You may be hard-pressed, but not destroyed. But it will enable you to carry around in you in a new way the light of Christ. To experience Him in a newer, deeper, richer, fuller way. That is a blessing of the kingdom Because the kingdom is about knowing God. The kingdom is not about living here and enjoying all the blessings of this earth. The kingdom is about knowing God. And He promises, I will not fail. I cannot be stopped from bringing to you every blessing in every way, in every time that I mean to, and one day bringing all the fullness of it. Nothing can stop my purposes in your life may seem that stuff is just happening, but providentially I am in control of all of it to bring to you, Christian, blessing upon blessing upon blessing because you are in Christ. The good news for you, Christian, is that you are not adrift in the world at its mercies. That is good news because the world has no mercy. You are not adrift in the world, but are in fact tightly, intimately, intricately controlled by a God who is doing you good in everything, bringing to you the blessing of His kingdom. Though you may sorrow, He means for you to rejoice. Though you may have trouble, He means for you to be thankful in all things and is working towards that and cannot be stopped. And as I said, He does not bring all of the blessings at once, That time is not yet. But every blessing He means to bring, He brings irresistibly. And that is good news for you who are believers. He has promised to protect you, promised to deliver you from every threat. And I think, may God give you a mind an eye to see it. I think that if you are not a Christian, this should be a strong lure because without this, the reality is without this, you are adrift in a world of relentless destruction. Never mind the wrath of God for a moment. You are in a world that is not out for your good. And so you better fight, you better fight, you better fight, you better fight, you better fight to protect yourself. And then you're going to realize you are weak. And the world is not out for your good. You need a strong deliverer. And there is only one. And the good news is that He invites you now while you still have time to kiss the sun to make peace with Him and to find in Him a great promise of protection and deliverance from every threat that would destroy you. That should be, I pray that it would be an enticement to you. You who fear and are heavy laden and are burdened, that's what the world is. And that's what God promises to address and deal with. 
He calls you to Himself and says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, who are troubled and plagued, burdened. I will give you rest. And you will find in Me that My yoke on you is easy and light. It is a yoke. It is a yoke. Which means you are owned. Yokes exist so that masters can tell cattle where to go. It is a yoke. He will be a master. He will tell you where to go. And you will find it to be blessing upon blessing and goodness upon goodness irresistibly poured out on you here and now as He makes you right and introduces you to the hope of your heart and one day then pours out every fullness of all the vast blessing of the kingdom of the glorious God who is. You can know that or you can not know it. Have it your way. But one way is the way of hope and one way is the way of death. Christian, you are a most fortunate man or woman or teenager or boy or girl. You are a most fortunate person that He has put you in Christ and has made the hope of Psalm 59. When you call to Him, He will meet you. My God in His steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Verse 10. Verse 17. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to You for You, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. That is Yours in Christ. And that is a privilege. That is a great hope. And remember that when you look at the world now and you look at the trouble now, and it is a world of trouble, you have a God who will never leave you nor forsake you, who is near to you and has promised to deliver you from every threat and to deliver you into the blessings of the kingdom. Rejoice in that God. Let me pray. Lord, would You open our eyes to believe. Those of us here who do not believe, Lord, would You open our eyes. Would You awaken slumbering hearts and alert them to eternity at their doorstep. And for those of us who know You, Lord, we are prone to wander and we easily forget. And so awaken us. Warm our hearts to the great hope that You are for us. And for those here, if there are some here who are particularly hard-pressed and beaten down, I pray that You would uniquely touch them. Yourself, by Your Spirit, even now, or as we reflect, or as we move through communion, that You would uniquely meet with people and assure them of Your presence. That's what we need, Lord. We need Your presence. So assure them of Your presence. Draw near. Be alive and vibrant in the hearts of the broken right now, Lord, whoever that is, wherever they are, whatever they're dealing with. Lord, I thank You that You are determined to bring the Son of David to the throne. I thank You that You have done that and that You will do it. Bring that day, Lord, now. Bring it soon, we pray. So meet with Your people now, Lord, as we pray to You silently. And then meet us again in communion afterwards. Thank You, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
we invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. 